Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now, the title of this show, Beyond Science Religion, is supposed to convey the idea that in order to reach a more healthy, unified, improved worldview, we need to go beyond our current conceptions of science and religion. And frankly, I'm not sure whether anybody has figured out how that is going to happen, but we know it's necessary because we know that there are flaws in the current model of science and religion. Now, when we think of science and religion, we tend to think simplistically. Science, we are taught, is the most authoritative discipline in the world. What they say is backed up by evidence, tests, measurements, instruments, multi-billion dollar equipment. Religion, on the other hand, is something that is a hand-me-down belief system, typically based upon archaic tests. Science question, questions religion believes. But science itself is a method. It's not a body of unquestionable theories. And as I attempt to show in my, my own book, The Collapse of Materialism, when we, when we apply the scientific method to materialism, it tends to fall apart. And what we have left, in my opinion, is the world of the poets, to put it in one way. But there's always the debate. There's always the debate between science and religion. And one uh, example that I think really crystallizes this debate is the debate between intelligent design and Darwin, intelligent design representing the unquestionable beliefs of religion, and Darwin, of course, representing the unquestionable conclusions of biology. But luckily, there's a, there have been a number of independent thinkers recently, but through the ages, but more and more recently, who are starting to push the envelope when it comes to evaluating this dichotomy between science and religion. Now, in many instances, these folks are outside the mainstream of science, and I include myself among them. And on the show today, I have somebody else whose name is Joseph Selby, and he's written this pretty amazing book. It's called The Physics of God, and then the subtitle is Unifying Quantum Physics, Consciousness, M-Theory, Heaven, Neuroscience, and Transcendence. Yes, there's a lot of unification going on there, but I think uh, in listening to Joseph today, what we're going to see is that taking an independent look at what we call science and religion is actually very healthy. And I might say that I really think that when change comes to our current paradigms, it is going to come from the outside. I don't see how uh, those within the paradigm are actually going to change their mind and give up their grants and scholarships and uh, teaching and, and teaching positions to challenge their way of looking at things. So Joseph, let me 
know here for a second, uh, what led you to write the book, The Physics of God? Well, it was really under response to uh, conversations I've had with many people who feel that they can't embrace a concept of God or an experience of God because they believe that science, in quotes, has already ruled it out and that uh, they would be you know, foolish to embrace something that obviously can't be true. And this is just so sad because my experience uh, personally is that you can have a personal experience of the divine through meditation, through uh, various spiritual practices, and that science, in fact, supports it rather than uh, denies it. So it's really only the material interpretation of scientific discoveries that make people think it has ruled out uh, any kind of spirituality or religion, when in fact the discoveries themselves, if you divorce them from the materialistic interpretation, are very supportive of a uh, infinite, intelligent consciousness. Okay, well let me, let's, let's just uh, define some terms here. Because one of the terms that you use a lot and that I've used in my book and that's bantied around in this literature, and by this literature I mean not only what I will call the quote-unquote new thought uh, movement, but also with a lot of open-minded quantum physicists such as Amit Goswami, by the way, who, who wrote your foreword and has been on my show about four times. But the, what, what happens here is that the concept of materialism is used, but a lot of folks don't understand it. Now, I'm gonna, now you do a good job of, it, of describing it in your book, and, and why don't you uh, take a shot at what, how, you de, how you describe materialism or scientific materialism, because I think it's important for the listener to, to really get their, their mind around what you are talking about. So how do you describe scientific materialism? Well, you have, as I uh, alluded to in the uh, last bit there, that uh, science has made many, many discoveries uh, from physics to chemistry to material science and on and on. And over the decades, from the early part of the 20th century to about mid-century, those scientists who interpreted those discoveries to mean that there were only two things in the universe, energy and matter, became the dominant uh, thinkers, became the most influential. They began to control the uh, scientific journals that were the most respected and most of all, they began to control funding. So it became almost impossible for scientists to get funded for research into anything that posited realities other than matter and energy. So it became sort of a, uh, a, a 
argument in a circle. Uh, no one is finding anything other than uh, matter and energy, and yet nobody is being uh, able with the kind of power and funding that uh, comes with the, um, the scientific materialist camp to go explore anything. So, Right, right. I want to give a uh, let, let, let me try this because I have a philosophy degree and, and what that has done for me, which is it's number one, it's made me seek a career outside of philosophy for, uh, is one thing since it's hard to make a living being a philosopher. But the, the, this notion of materialism, uh, which, which um, almost all leading scientists follow, is really to me uh, very it's coextensive with what Amika Swami would call the independent world hypothesis. So to me, materialists assume that there is a real material world independent of human consciousness. And that, that to me, the very strict interpretation, that's what it is. And then what happens, and to me, Joseph, this is what's happening in our, in our culture right now with people like you and others sort of sort of poking around at this at this weakness is that when you separate mind from matter you don't have any way to organize the matter or and you don't have any way to create the matter and and I think that like for example the multiverse is a really good example of this because the multiverse as you point out in your book as well is really an answer of the materialists to how there can be order in the world and, and, and they have this incredibly ridiculous theory, I think, or conclusion that, well, we could explain the order in the world because there's actually an, a near infinite number of universes and one of those must be ordered. And that, that is, to me, a sort of a uh, avoiding the topic, an escape route. And, and the more you think about it, the more absurd it seems. And so what I, what I want to get real clear here is that, in my mind, materialism separates the mind or a mind from matter. Uh, now, I don't know if, you're, if your interpretation is the same. Is yours the same, or, or, or am I taking more of an extremist view here? Well, no, I agree with what you were saying. I think that I would uh, put it slightly differently. I would say that materialists uh, don't really think there is a mind. There yeah, is yeah. a brain, a biological brain that's part of our body that uh, gives us what we think of as consciousness, but it doesn't extend beyond the boundaries of the body. Um, and they don't like the notion of mind, and they really dislike heartily the uh, intelligent observer paradox, which uh, is very hard to describe uh, quickly, but I will do my best. The, the intelligent observer paradox came from early experiments in quantum physics when they were trying to understand how light could be both a particle and a wave, uh, which is in itself a part of what we referred to as quantum weirdness, this notion that something can behave both in a wave-like fashion and in a particle fashion. So in order to understand that aspect of light, they did a series of experiments which became known as the 
sort of generically as double slit experiments because they all uh, had this apparatus in which light in various forms, whether as photons or as waves, was shone through two different side-by-side -side vertical slits. And then it impacted a detector on the other side of the slits in which they could see how the light behaved once it got past the slits. Well, again, not trying to go into too much detail here, is what they noticed is that light would behave one way if it was observed and another if it was not observed. Or more specifically, in those instances, light would behave one way when it was measured and another way when it wasn't measured. And this dichotomy, this paradox has never been disproven. And the essence of it is, is that without an intelligent observer, without the presence of mind, if you will, without the presence of consciousness, perhaps, matter remains in a wave-like state. In the presence of uh, intelligent consciousness, it starts to behave like matter. And the inescapable conclusion is that we, in our conscious selves, have a role in the formation of matter. And this is what is so hard for the materialist point of view to accept, because the materialists, as you so clearly pointed out, uh, separate those two completely. There's matter, and then there's what happens inside your brain, and there is no possible connection between the two. But yet, a lot of uh, deep-thinking, far-seeing uh, physicists in the early part of the 20th century and, and through till today just embrace that notion that the mind or consciousness is required for matter to form and have sort of turned the whole notion of matter creating consciousness upside down and saying it must be the case that consciousness in some way we don't fully understand yet creates matter yeah yeah, uh, yeah i i have i have an article that i'm i'm working on actually it's done um and it's called something like a, a test a test to prove the truth of what i call the real dream um worldview and and the the irony is that if you look scientifically you know and i started the introduction of the show with uh focusing on the scientific method you know scientific method is you give an hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis, and if it stands up to questioning tests, then it, it then it may have some aspect of truth. And we have no evidence whatsoever that uh, consciousness can come from matter, nor do we have any evidence whatsoever that what scientists abstractly believe is matter, such as this hard stuff, rocks and stones, that, or put differently, the uh, trillions upon trillions of stars in the sky, the matter that makes up those stars, that that matter could come, come from nothing. And, but we do have evidence that an apparent world can come from consciousness. And, and by apparent world, I mean such things as hallucinations and dreams. And so it, it's just, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me that we, we, Tend that we ignore the evidence on this fundamental point, and I I, I know that uh, this is probably 
one of the deeper questions that we all have to face. But, uh, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the show, this question about, you know, uh, uh, you make it in your book. You know, quantum physicists all know that the quantum theory disproves the existence of matter, but nobody wants to admit it, and they avoid it. And it's a psychological, it's a psychological issue. And maybe this is a psychological issue. And I think that that's really a problem because one would think that the whole idea, it's like understanding how a machine works. If you don't understand how a machine works, you can never fix it. And what we're trying to do here is understand how the world works so we can fix it. And that's, that's why I don't think this is, you know, this is an off-limits kind of a, topic. So let me stop for a second here because I, I wanted to go to your, you know, this is sort of a nice segue into your uh, chapters one and two of your book. And I really think this is a, a very smooth way to do this. You talk about chapter one, you say the religion of science, which is a great title. And then chapter two is the science of, of the science of religion. So you switched it. So let's talk about the religion of science for a second. What do you mean by the religion of science? Well, I'm using the term uh, to, to denote that scientific materialism is a belief system. And a belief system can be, um, you know, mostly self-evident with gaps. And that's the, the usual uh, accusation that science levels at religion is it's just a belief system. There are these huge gaps in uh, what you're saying about religion and what can be proven. And so the same is true with science, uh, scientific materialism. Now, science is just a methodology, as you pointed out in your intro. It uh, Science doesn't have an opinion one way or the other about what it discovers. It's just a method. But scientists have loads of opinions, and scientific materialists, uh, because they're so convinced by, uh, you know, a large body of work that matter and energy interactions can explain everything, they are convinced that it will also be able to explain the big questions. Where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? How did it arise and what is consciousness and how did it arise? Those three are perhaps the most fundamental questions that mankind asks over and over, generation after generation. And scientific materialism has no good answers to them. They have the belief that someday, one day, somehow, it will be proven that uh, all of these can be answered by observing the interactions between energy and matter. But until then, it's just a belief. And their are suppositions that they put forward, their hypotheses for how these things could happen are really crude and easy to disprove, yet they, they stick with them. Like, you know, for example, the creation of life from matter. There's still... A uh, hundred years on is this commonly held belief that somehow there was this primordial ooze that existed uh, millions of years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, and it was hit by lightning, and there were there was just the right 
environmental conditions of what was in the atmosphere and what was in the water, and life began. Now, if that really were true, you would think that by now they would have been able to recreate all those conditions and create that beginning, whatever it is, that led to life. But they're nowhere near it. Yeah, in I, fact, I, yeah I, I think that, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I think that you, you have made, this is a very important point that I want to emphasize, that, and, and it took some boldness on your part um, to, to, go, to go this direction, because I have the same the conclusion in, in, some of, in some of my work, the religion of science, that science ultimately is a belief system. The difference is that science will say that, okay, there's certain fundamental principles they take for granted. And I'm actually looking at an excerpt of an article by this guy, Ernst Meyer, who is uh, probably the second or third most famous biologist in history. Uh, he was a Harvard professor, neo-Darwinian. He passed away a couple years ago. But he has this, uh, art this article um, that was published away, you know, a while ago, and he says that basically every, every scientist brings with them certain assumptions, um, and one of them is that there's a real world independent of human perception. Another one is that the world is ordered, and that there is some connectivity between between living things or some consistency. More, more specifically, there's another um, book that you probably, probably have seen. I think it's called The Physics for Poets, where that guy, that author very candidly says that, that scientists uh, bring a number of assumptions to their study and they take matter and the laws of nature as given. Well, those are two pretty big assumptions. And, and those assumptions are the same thing as a belief system. <laughs> They're, they're basically believing, and this is where I have a real problem, they're, they're basically believing that somehow this, this naked matter and energy can organize itself, not only to the picture-perfect universe, but into living things. And so that's why I interrupted you, because this is, this is it's an amazing assumption that you, that you throw dust into the wind, and that dust is going to decide to assemble itself into any in, into an amoeba or something, even you know, even the lowest life form. It really is an amazing, amazing assumption. So, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it, it is an amazing an assumption. It's a it's a logical extrapolation of what they believe they've already discovered, and so it's natural for all of us really to build on what we think we know. But they've taken it to such a degree that. Um, it, as you say, you throw dust in the wind and life is created, it becomes almost um, laughable. There, uh, uh, I forget who actually said this first, I'd like to give him credit, but I can't remember his name, but that um, there is a assumption that the entire universe was created as the result of a quantum fluctuation. Yeah. And quantum fluctuations are well understood by quantum physicists. And when you have a quantum fluctuation, it does uh, cause virtual particles to uh, come into being. And they usually annihilate each other and go out of uh, being after that. But the key to this quote that I'm, I'm trying to attribute to someone, and I don't remember their name, is that he's saying 
a quantum fluctuation has to occur within something. Right. So where did where did the something come from? You know, there's always another layer of uh, where did that come from yeah. when they talk about the creation of the universe. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there are huge holes. There yeah. are huge holes in scientific materialism because of these yeah, issues. I, yeah, I think that I think the original author of the quantum fluctuation was that guy Ed Triton, but then but then uh, Lawrence Krauss. You know, the professor wrote that book, uh, A Universe from Nothing, and a couple other folks have gotten on the bandwagon. But what's interesting about that quantum fluctuation, which is, of course, a big topic unto itself, it goes, it goes hand in hand with what you were saying about the observer, the observer effect in quantum theory, which is that I always thought that this uncertainty in the, in the energy level of empty space was a derivation of quantum theory, which, of course, re I think it requires a consciousness in order to in, in order to come to that conclusion. <laughs> so, so I think the the quantum fluctuation people are sort of abstracting from their own consciousness to imagine some kind of uncertainty in the energy level without there being a mind or consciousness to observe it. It's a little it's a little strange to me. And if, and if folks are happy with that being an explanation, then I guess I guess you could be happy about it. But but um, you still have to figure out how that fluctuation create you know formed itself into our our picture perfect universe. Uh, it it really is it really is an amazing thing. And here here is the big point that I want to emphasize, and that is if you take the the logic, the reason, the common sense approach as your methodology. And then you look at the theories of science and you look at the belief systems of religion, you see that there are flaws in both of them. And there's not enough people who are looking at the theories of science and saying, you know, wait a minute, does that make any sense? And I think that's that's a very healthy thing that you're doing, and in in your book, and it's it's done very well because it comes across very uh, scholarly. Frankly, it, you're you're saying, hey folks, uh, there this there really isn't any proof for half of this stuff. I mean, multiverse, inflationary, Big Bang, origin of life. We can go on and on and on, but yet they're part of the scientific orthodoxy. So, so this is a really important step here, and but then you move on to uh, your chapter two, which is called the science of religion, and you spend a lot of time here, and um, it's clear, Joseph, that you have been in influenced by your, I'm going to call it your Eastern meditation yoga uh, background. Is that a fair conclusion that you've spent a lot of time with uh, Eastern? philosophy thinking to sort yes of, yeah okay why, yeah, why don't very you, much so okay why don't you why don't you put that together for us on how you sort of how your background and your meditation background yoga sort of got you into this in, into this position where you can now argue that religion itself has a scientific aspect to it well I think the simplest way to say it is that Science bases its discoveries on experimentation 
where at the heart of all religious experience, they're basing their discoveries on experience. Direct experience is what separates the science of religion from uh, the dogmas of religion, the, the teaching stories of religion, uh, the origin stories of religion, which are all uh, what many, many of the sort of enlightened saints and sages down through time have said are meant to be allegorical. They're both, they're meant to be uh, sort of physical seeming descriptions of reality that are meant to be taken as a, a structure to understand subtle realities. They're not meant to be taken literally. And in, in our unfortunate history of the world, we see that uh, religion is often taken literally and causing wars and strife and um, you know horrific disagreements through time. But if you took all of the uh, progenitors of those religions and uh, the saviors and the saints who uh, enriched that religion in over the many, many centuries, you put them together, whether they're from, Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Christianity or Judaism, put them all in a room and they would all agree in the spirit of personal experience of a divine entity of which they are a part, a divine entity which is intelligent, loving, omnipresent, infinite, and that they are not basing their uh, conviction about the presence of this uh, reality on logic. They're basing it on personal experience. And so this is where, as you pointed out, it ties into my background. I've been meditating for almost 50 years. And there's just no question for me in, in any way that I am communing uh, when I'm doing my meditations well with divinity and that my own essence is part of that divinity. So I can be bold, if you will, in my uh, description of the science of religion because I've practiced it and I've gotten the results. And I know now over the many, many decades of uh, working with other people, of teaching, lecturing, that there are thousands that I've thousands of people that I've directly encountered, let alone ones I've read about, who also share this um, personal divine experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if you, I was just going to say, what you have to do to to find the unity between science and religion is you have to get rid of the interpretations. You have to get rid of the scientific materialist interpretation. And you have to get rid of the orthodox, dogmatic, religious interpretation and put together the actual discoveries of science and the actual experience of the saints and sages and mystics throughout the ages. And that's where you see this amazing um, conformance and congruence of what they're talking about. Yeah, or, or put differently, we have to go beyond science and religion, which segues nicely into the title of, of the show, and that's that that's sort of what I've been 
I've been advocating here is that too many times, and I, I think this, this reaches 90%, and I'm just wildly estimating this, but too many times when someone says religion, they immediately think that you are a biblical literalist. That that's that's really what it means. It means it means what the priest um, was was preaching in in the last in the last mass that you went to. That's it. But that's not. This is how people get in trouble. This is why conflict. This is why religions have conflicts. Is because you have different people interpreting different texts instead of interpreting the experience. And that that's that's a big a big movement a big. Uh, step forward. You know, the, there's a great book which I would, which you probably have read, which I highly recommend to the listener. It's called The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley, and he gets and he does an, a, a very, probably the best job ever of showing the similarities between the world's religions on the spiritual, in this this spiritual foundation that they all, as Joseph just said, they all have this sense of unity at the core of existence. Uh, and, and again, you know, there's also this problem, Joseph, that as those who support this more unifying worldview, which I happen to think continues to search for the right title or the right name, we, we are constantly um, being subjected to uh, trying to prove the truth of these phenomena, such as near-death experiences, through the tools of materialistic science. Right? That, I, feel, I've, I view this as a real problem. It's like saying, well, take a photograph of it, or measure it, or show me the brain waves, or, or, or there, there's some, and, and so I think this is something that you know the the um, this industry, this school of thought continues to struggle with, and I'm just wondering what you think of that problem, which is, and I'm sure you've seen it before, which is how do you deal with somebody who says, "Well, prove it to me, show show me the evidence," kind of thing, the the objective evidence. Well, I don't know that I could predict when this might happen, but I do believe that there is an inevitable paradigm shift coming. And when the paradigm shifts, then the, uh, the relative positions of who's arguing for what also shift. So when a paradigm shifts, instead of the scientists saying, well, show me a picture, show me a, uh, a brain scan, it'll shift to, well, show me proof of um, the creation of the universe. Show me proof of the origin of consciousness from matter. And that paradigm shift, I think, is is happening. Um, you probably know this, that the fastest growing uh, spiritual category in the United States is called um, SBNR, spiritual but not religious. And it's growing in leaps and bounds that there are uh, literally something like 35 or 40 million people in America who believe in uh, a, the, the perennial philosophy. They believe in the essence of religious experience, but they don't believe in any one particular religion's uh, definition of that. 
And I think that's a indicator that this paradigm is uh, growing. The alternative paradigm to materialism is growing. And at some point, it's just going to flip. We're, we're not even necessarily going to be able to uh, point to a date and say, well, it, public opinion, the, the world mind shifted on this uh, important topic. But I think it's coming. I yeah. think just because so many people are dissatisfied with the dogmatic uh, descriptions found in religions and with orthodox believers, and they're also dissatisfied with pure materialism. It doesn't, it doesn't add up emotionally, even if perhaps it adds up logically. And I think, I think we'll see a change probably in our lifetimes. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's where things are heading, and I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you you said that, and you uh, believe that I, over the, over the course of my doing this show, and I took a I've taken a little sabbatical, and I'm um, getting back into it, but I think I've been doing this show now for seven years or so. I would ask folks how long they would they think be, before this paradigm shift is going to occur. And typically folks say in our lifetime and it's eminent. And so there's a lot of folks who are who are um, of this mind. And I'm, I go back to universities and the curriculum. And I, I think that we're really not going to see a, a dramatic change until this new way of thinking gets taught in the schools or we have more people attending the classes on going beyond science and religion, then here's what you need to know about um, particle physics. Uh, you know, it's, sort of, it's, it's going to be one of these, I mean, I think that's how you change minds ultimately, is you have to see that you have to change the curriculum in schools. And, and that's, that's going to take a while because the, the folks who are who are creating the curriculum, who are teaching the classes, are brought up in the paradigm of materialism, and their careers, professions, reputations depend upon it. So it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun, though. And uh, it's happened before in history. It, this is it's going to be it's going to be big. Um, I happen to think, and then I'll turn it to you for a second here. But when you have people like Eben Alexander who wrote that book, The Proof of Heaven, after he had a near-death experience. And of course, and he was a, see, a neurosurgeon or something, I think he was, a neurosurgeon. Right, right. Okay, so here you have this orthodox neurosurgeon having a near-death experience. It really had a big effect on him. And so when you were talking about the science of religion and the... Uh, the, the unity of these of these experiences I think near-death experiences are a big one if it's pretty hard to argue with somebody who's ha actually had one of those experiences it's pretty hard to argue that they that they're that they either a didn't really have the experience or B that during that experience they experienced something otherworldly so so maybe it's a combination of personal experiences and 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 a new um, generation of more open-minded scientists, but it's it's definitely going to be very interesting. And it's one thing I liked about your book is that it 
it's one of those books that sort of pushes the envelope a little bit and to each of us we need to push it a little bit more and um, open the doors so you then talk we talked a little bit about quantum theory and I don't want to um, really get into it that deeply except uh, I you know, you have a whole chapter of your book on quantum theory, the ultimate, uh, the light show. And to me, doesn't doesn't quantum theory support basically what we're both saying here? I mean, I, I have a, I mean, quantum theory on its face says there's no such thing as matter. <laughs> that this whole concept doesn't exist. It's not, it's not hard stuff. We want it to be hard stuff, but it really isn't. So, so what, where do you think quantum theory fits into your view of the world? Where do you put it? Well, I, I agree with everything that you just mentioned. I think uh, quantum theory, quantum science is uh, revolutionary. It's so revolutionary that even its own practitioners don't believe in most of the implications of quantum theory, such as that the atom molecules, all of the things that we think of as matter, are just uh, energy moving in coordinated patterns. I think Heinz Pagels, uh, who was the uh, director of the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, made one of my favorite quotes, which is that matter is energy held in intelligent patterns. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And it's the the reason why I think many quantum physicists themselves resist the implications of quantum theory is that it brings in this notion that there is an intelligence uh, that it lies outside of what happens inside our brain. And it's the, you know, the fundamental theory of intelligent design. Einstein believed there was a colossal intelligence that ordered the universe and all of creation. Uh, there are thinkers, there are scientists. And in fact, I'd wanted to say in, in response to something you said earlier about how fast the paradigm might flip, is that a Pew study done in 2009 indicated that 51% of scientists believed in a higher intelligence or a higher power. And only 42 considered themselves to be materialists. Hmm. So uh, I think there are a lot of scientists who, uh, when, the, when the paradigm flips, will suddenly start speaking up. Yeah. But right, right now, they need their jobs. <laughs> they need their research. Uh, they don't want to rock the boat. But that they hold these uh, opinions already. And I think in part, that is because of uh, quantum physics. Quantum physics just turns our worldview upside down. Yeah, and I think that I think that it's it's been ignored, as you point out. I mean, when you think about it, it's been almost a hundred years since quantum theory was first developed. And if there's one thing that comes out of quantum theory, it's that our assumed perception of the world as existing of little ball bearings is, is not correct. 
that I like, and everyone has their own spin on this. But and I, and depending on on when you ask me, I would have I would probably give you a different facet of my own understanding of it. But at at its core, quantum theory essentially says that the world's made of energy. It's not. It's made of. It's made of. I think that's the best way to put it. It's made of energy as opposed to ball bearings. And then, so then the ultimate question is, where's the, what's the source of the energy? And that's where you get into consciousness and outer space and all this kind of stuff. But, but, you know, I also like, you, you know, you calling it light, you know, I mean, um, and uh, referring to the, you know, this whole thing about the wave particle duality. But at the end of the day, it really isn't what we thought it was. And, um, it, it really says a lot about whether scientific scientific materialism is going to make it much longer since materialism itself is based upon a ball-bearing universe. <laughs> That's what's, it really is remarkable. Now, I mention energy, and I did that in part because one of the fundamental... Um, principles that you're advocating in your book, you call it the energy verse, and and this is a, I guess it, it might be similar to the zero point or the field theories of some other thinkers, but but you use the term energy verse, and why don't you tell us what the energy verse is? Well, the energy verse really came out of um, looking at what is the current uh, explanation given by M-theory for how the universe forms. Now, M-theory is a variant of string theory. There are many different string theories, and M-theory is the most prominent one. And M-theory posits that our entire physical universe is... Uh, underlaid by a, uh, a vast ocean of energy. And this vast ocean of energy is made up of little tiny rings and strings of energy. That's where the term string theory comes from. And that this uh, energy is so vast that, and this is why um, the multiverse theory can hold some sway with with scientists is that this energy uh, realm full of rings and strings is so vast that literally a, a infinite number of physical universes can be created within it. It is that much greater, if you will, than the physical universe. Now, the string theorists refer to this realm as the bulk, B-U-L-K. And I personally find that the most unexciting name for... <laughs> that is pretty bad. That anything is, that, that has ever been named yeah, by scientists. Yeah, that's pretty bad. So I came up, just I coined it myself. I, I find it to be more descriptive just in its uh, in itself, which is energy verse. So... Uh, but energy verse also is a term that also aligns itself more with um, 
esoteric spiritual teachings. And in esoteric spiritual teachings, we as um, people, as beings, as souls, exist on multiple levels of reality. And in almost all esoteric paths, you'll uh, come across the concept of an astral body or an esoteric body or an energy body or a mental body and on and on. Uh, every esoteric tradition has their own terminology. But all of them, when you kind of get down to the core of what they mean by it, are saying that we exist in multiple dimensions. That we have our physical body, which gives us our senses and through which we can perceive the physical world around us. But we're also underlain, just like the physical universe is, by a vast bulk of energy that manifests as our energy body. And the energy body is sort of hand in glove, that there is no real separation between the physical body and the energy body. They're just different qualities that they bring to and different uh, capabilities that they bring to us. So just one obvious example is uh, our feelings. There's no feeling organ in the physical body. We think of the heart poetically as a, a center of feeling, but there's no feeling organ there. There's no particular nervous properties, uh, neuronal constructions, or anything that indicate this is where you feel things. It's because you feel them in this subtler level of reality in your energy body, and you feel what is essentially the movement of this kind of energy. Um, in inspiration, you feel this rush of energy up from the lower part of your body up into the heart and into the brain. When you're depressed, you feel that energy going the other way. Uh, when you are uh, done a great favor or kindness, you feel this expansion of energy in the heart. This is really what it is. It is subtle energy that is moving. And that awareness of that energy is what makes you have feelings. Well, let so, me, okay, let me, let me, okay, why don't you put your thought there? Go ahead. Well, I was just about done. So I was just saying that this this notion that we have subtle body, a subtle body, maybe multiple subtle, subtle bodies, is not just a abstract, esoteric theory, but it really does get backed up by um, direct personal experience and to some degree uh, scientific studies. Okay, so what I, what I would do here, and I, I've... Uh, I've told Amit before, Mr. Goswami, that I'm probably probably the only more radical person than he is, uh, which is sort of a joke. But but here's what I think the issue is. I think that our goal as humans is to combine these two things. I mean, you're talking about. I mean, we tend to think in terms of, you know, you just said physical uh, energy. And you sort of said they were at two aspects of the same thing, but you know you end your book by talking about, uh, or you, I think you quote, maybe this is maybe this is your, I think this is your own um, phrase. We talk about we're, we're God with amnesia, which I think is perfectly expressed. 
And when, when we carry on, if you look at the state of humankind, if we're really God with amnesia, or we're, or if we're really spiritual beings uh, at heart, and we're carrying on our lives as if we're robots, you definitely have a disconnect going on between our true being and, and what we think we are. And I think that this paradigm shift, the reason why I think it has to occur is that I do think that we are rising to this realization that we are energy beings and we're sort of, sort of uh, like a, a, a snake sheds its skin. We're sort of like shedding these outworn beliefs and, and at some point we become better beings. Now, I don't really know what that means. It's nice to think about it um, abstractly, but I think that that's what this whole, you know, this whole thing comes down to for me. And, you know, I have a question here um, in my outline. It's, it's, what is the point of all this for the guy on the street? You know, what, what is, what is the, what, what is the point? And I think, so I'll, I'll let you answer that question, but I, I gave you that, you know, I made my comments because I am always think about the guy in the street because I happen to be the guy in the street. And so this, I'm thinking about what is it going to do for me? You know, so go ahead. Well, I would say, you know, as, as I began with the answer to your first question, I find it um, very sad and unfortunate that, People have been convinced that they have no higher self. They have no higher properties. They, they are not more than just a physical body by uh, sciences uh, or scientific materialism's you know, conclusion of that. And so I would say what my book has and what this new paradigm has uh, for the man in the street is the encouragement that there is, in fact, a lot more to you that can be explored. And the number one tool I recommend to everyone is meditation. If you can sit still, there are many, many different meditation practices, but they all have this sort of common effect of bringing mind, body, and heart to a calm, quiet focus. And when you are able to do that, and to any degree that you are able to do that, you begin to experience more of your energy body. You begin to experience more of who you are beyond the physical body. And when you touch that, again, as I said at the very beginning, when you have that actual direct experience yourself, you don't need to be talked into it anymore. You don't need logic. You don't need any other uh, emphasis from any other direction to make you go, oh, I want, I want more of this. And so that's what is in it for the man in the street. If you can get past any uh, mental, logical, rational reservations you might have about um, the underpinnings of religion and just try it, you'll find uh, very pleasantly that there is a lot to experience of yourself and that you begin to wake up from this amnesia 
that you are just this physical body with the same limitations as matter. And you begin to realize there's a lot more to me than I ever knew. Well, the going down the idealistic path here for a second, uh, we talked about this paradigm shift, and I think that it is exciting to imagine the paradigm shift because if science e evolves to encompass uh, what is now known as spirituality, if there's not separation between the two disciplines, and we start realizing that the world and ourselves are a lot richer than science tells us they are, that we're not just sort of amoebas on a random planet with no purpose, that we're actually spiritual beings. If that becomes a science as opposed to a religion, then it's something that eventually has universal appeal. That That's what that's what makes this exciting to me because and that's why I I really think we need a scientific revolution also also known as a paradigm shift because now you have something people can agree upon beyond their sacred texts so that is the ultimate reason why I'm in this field is because I think that by going beyond our our typical or standard orthodox ways of looking at things through the eyes of science and religion, we find ourselves in these um, sort of unsolvable conflicts, whether it's between the Jews and the Muslims, or whether it's between Russia and the U.S., or whatever, whatever conflict we want to put out there, we start going beyond that. So... So that that is ultimately, you know, I told you it was an idealistic uh, view, but I think that's the appeal of this new worldview. Um, so well, if everybody thought that everybody else was as much a part of them as they themselves are, war would cease to exist immediately. Right, right, right. There ultimately is, and then you know, you know, when you start going down that path, you start seeing the truth of the spiritual traditions. That's what essentially they talk about. It, but it's, it's always, you know, in the past when you go, and I'm sure you've studied, uh, you know, or read the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, those classic old, older spiritual books, they tend to be about this very topic, but they're expressed in this poetic language. And, it, and even even in the even in the in the in the Old and New Testaments, it's still expressed as a little a little um, sort of in in, public, in 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 biblical or metaphorical language, but it starts coming it, it's it's starting to become more and more clearly expressed. Okay, so we are we are nearing the end here. We haven't talked about the holographic. Um, principle that you talked about here, but we may have to save that for another day. I I think that we've done a lot here. The time has flown by. 
but I want to give you the chance, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but I want to give you the chance not only to say a couple of closing remarks, but also to talk about, you know, how folks could find your book and and you said you're that you're working on something else. So I'd like to give you a couple moments here just to give some lat some closing remarks and then I'll say a couple of things. But go ahead, Joseph. Well, let me just thank you for uh, moving the paradigm further, further with your uh, with your program and with your time and energy. Uh, I think it's I think it's coming. I'm have been devoted to this for the last fifty years of my life, practically, and I can see in that even in that relatively short period of time that minds are changing. The attitudes are changing. The, the world really is evolving in a positive way, even though uh, there is a lot of strife and difficulty uh, involved in the world and probably will be for, for a long time. But things are changing to the positive. So for me, um, in terms of how people might uh, find my book, it's available in uh, Kindle, Audible, and print format on Amazon. Uh, you can get it at many bookstores. I have a website, which is uh, physicsandgod.com, physicsandgod.com, uh, with lots more articles, uh, some other interviews, recordings of interviews that were made, uh, first chapters of the book, and some events that I have, I have an online course that can be taken anytime. I've completed it, but all of the lectures, all of the talks, all of the questions are there, and you can uh, take it if you so desire. Cool. That's about it. I'm okay. working. Uh, I'm working on another book, The Psychology of God, and uh, in the same way that. Scientific materialism has really kind of put the brakes on speculation about consciousness and subtle energy in the world of physical experiments. Scientific materialism has also put the brakes on uh, psychology's exploration of more subtle explanations for consciousness. And I think just as we've been talking in this session, the facts are there. The subtle realities exist, and the more people realize it, the more we can shift the paradigm in that quadrant as well. Yeah, okay, well, uh, I want to thank you for your time uh, and your um, insights on this show, and once again, I'm, I would recommend uh, Joseph's book, The Physics of God. It's one of those books, um, and there's not many of them, although the number is increasing, where you read it and, you're go and I think your mind will be opened a little bit. It doesn't matter from what belief system or, or um, school of thought you're coming from, uh, there is a really a rich um, treasure trove of quotes from uh, the his some of the history's greatest thinkers that are supporting what Joseph is saying. And then, and so this is the very kind of thing that we need to get to this this paradigm shift. We know that's where it's heading, and uh, I guess the proof that I would pr propose at this point in time is that when you when you actually go outside and you look at the world for what it is, and you don't you don't bring with you these preconceptions from either standard 
materialistic science or religion and just look at the world it's pretty clear that we are part of a miracle and that I think is where all science and religion begins. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.